0: Hey, this is Matt Markin, and we are now at episode 43 of the Adventures in Advising podcast. The state of Connecticut has implemented a guided pathways model for its community college system with a large investment in case management to support those pathways. How does this go from an idea to actual implementation? Find out here. And if you don't already, check us out on social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok at Advising Podcast and YouTube at Adventures in Advising. Without further ado... Here's the
1: episode.
2: Hello and welcome to episode 43 of Adventures in Advising. It's our 18th episode of 2021.
0: Let's give some shout outs. Shout out to Amy Soto, who works at the University Advisement Center at BYU. Amy reached out on LinkedIn and said, Hi, Matt, I really enjoy your podcast and the great content that you are sharing. Thanks for all that you do. Thank you, Amy, for your comment and also listening into the podcast. We truly appreciate it.
2: Thanks to Julia Maher for getting in touch to let us know that she really enjoyed episode 41 of the podcast. Julia said, I really connected to Sarah's words about work life balance and career, and Ebony's discussion of the importance of relationships and collaborations. Also, her talk about work-life balance and being realistic about what you can do. Really glad that that connected with you, Julia. And thanks again for getting in touch to let us know.
0: And also regarding episode 41 with Ebony Staten. Ebony, you got a lot of love from some of your former colleagues. Mauricio Kadavid from Cal State San Bernardino wrote, Ebony Staten was always sunshine and rainbows whenever I interacted with her. And one of her peer advisors, Wendy Padron, who wrote, I have nothing but amazing memories interacting with Ebony. So wonderful sentiments from both of you. Ebony is definitely one of a kind.
2: Up first, it's Gail Barrett and Michael Bucelli.
0: So the state of Connecticut is implementing a Guided Pathways model for its community college system, and they're utilizing a case management advising model to support Guided Pathways. So this episode is devoted to learning about the history of how this Guided Pathways model came about, what is Guided Pathway model, how case management is being used, and kind of how it's all being implemented. So to get us started with learning more about the history of this and how an idea goes through this process to where it is now, we have two special guests. So first up is Michael Buccilli who serves as Associate Vice President for Student Success Management for the Connecticut State Community Colleges. He brings with him 18 years experience developing, leading, and delivering high-quality programs and services in workforce development, enrollment management, and student affairs in community-based organizations and community colleges. He has held leadership roles in academic advising, career services, counseling, holistic support services, disability services, and veterans affairs. Prior to his AVP role, he served as a guided pathways manager at the Connecticut State Colleges and Universities, leading several redesign efforts, including the creation of the Holistic Case Management Advising Policy. He has presented nationally on a variety of topics, such as advising and redesign and first year experience. He holds a BS from the University of Vermont, MSW in management from Southern Connecticut State University, and is a doctoral candidate at Central Connecticut State University in the Educational Leadership Program. Michael, welcome to the podcast.
3: Thanks for having me, Matt.
0: And we also have Dr. Gail Barrett, who is currently the Associate Vice President of Enrollment and Retention Services for Connecticut State Community College. Dr. Barrett has over 20 years of experience working in higher education and is skilled in areas such as enrollment management, holistic student support, guided pathways, and student development. She has presented nationally on such topics as holistic case management, advising models, and the backwards design of first-year experience courses. Dr. Barrett has been with the Connecticut Community College System since 2008 and has served in various roles such as Nursing Admission Specialist, Director of Admissions, and Director of Enrollment Management. In spring 2018, Dr. Barrett joined the CSCU Student Success Center in their work on Guided Pathways. As a Guided Pathways Manager, she has co-led for the Holistic Student Support Redesign Team. Through this work, she helped to co-create the Holistic Case Management Advising Policy. Dr. Barrett received her bachelor's degree in psychology from Stonehill College, a master's degree in counselor education from Central Connecticut State University, and her doctorate in educational leadership from the University of Hartford. Her research on mentoring networks and women community college leaders was recently published in the Journal of Applied Research in the Community College. Dr. Barrett, welcome to the podcast as well.
4: Thank you so much. And
2: please call me Gail. <laughs> well, we are delighted to have the opportunity to chat to you both. And this is a, a really interesting topic and there's going to be lots to delve into, but we really do like to give our listeners the opportunity to get to know you a little bit, at, at least at, at the, the beginning and obviously very distinguished bios. But if you could Tell us just a little bit in terms of like finding your way in, into higher ed and where you are now. Was higher ed always a passion? Was that where you, you, you always saw, saw yourself uh, en- ending up or uh, how did it uh, come about?
4: Well, I, guess, well, I guess I'll start. So um, for me, it was kind of a happy accident. Um, I was doing an internship my senior year of college and I was interpreting the strong interest inventory for entering college freshmen. And I found that I really liked working with college students, even though I was still one myself. And from that point on, um, I worked with my supervisor in the career counseling office at Stonehill, um, who suggested I look into college admissions as my first career. So I started off as a very green admissions counselor at Post University and kind of worked my way through various admissions and enrollment and student development roles until, you know, here I am today.
2: And uh, that's I, I I love that the, you you know you discovered that the passion uh, for working with college students and you you've managed to you know get to a point where you're making a, a real real difference at a strategic level which we'll we'll delve into. Uh, I suppose, Mike, what what about you? How did you find yourself where you are now?
3: Yeah, thank you. Um, you know, my career really comes full circle right now. Um, I, I have the privilege and pleasure of leading the implementation of this holistic case management advising model. And, you know, I was my undergraduate and graduate degrees in social work. I began my career at a nonprofit community-based agency called Women and Family Centers. And in that role, um, I was asked by the then CEO if I would help manage um, a workforce development program that they had that was really kind of on its last couple dollars. <laughs> um, so it, my job was to recruit 10 students, um, help them complete their GED and get into a certified nurse's assistant program. It was a case management model. Um, I was able to uh, get those 10 students and, and grow that program um, over a, a five-year period. We were serving upwards of over 150 students. Um, when I started thinking, you know what, We're getting students through these workforce credentials. They're getting employed, um, but they're still not making family-sustaining wages. And to me, I saw the associate's and bachelor's degree really as the gateway to family-sustainable wage. So I started thinking about, hmm, where could I go? And started applying for positions in the community college system. And I often use the analogy, I was pushing these rafts across the river to the other side and they were getting to the credit side and starting in developmental ed. And I'd, I'd see my caseload the students around the city and ask them how things were going. And, and oftentimes they struggled and kind of spun out in developmental ed and didn't get to that associate goal. Um, so I applied for and and was hired as the director of career services at Gateway Community College in New Haven. During that time, um, then uh, Dean of Students, Wilson Luna and and gave me some opportunities to help reimagine their new student advising program. So I worked closely with the faculty uh, advising director at the time and and student affairs folks to to think about how we would better onboard students in an advising context. Um, That led me to uh, leadership roles in advising and counseling and and student affairs at Gateway. Um, Come to 2018, um, actually early in 2017, We were attending a conference and we're learning all about holistic student supports and the I-PASS grantees were presenting and we were just getting all juiced up. And and, and the folks we traveled with kind of looked at me and said, Mike, do you think you could lead this kind of on the side while you do your other job? And and I said, no. I said, this is a full-time job. If you really want to redesign this, it's going to take, you know, more than a couple hours a week. Um, So, this will probably segue into some of your next questions, but that kind of emerged as a concept that we would have full-time faculty, staff, administrators step away from their roles on campus to really lead this work. And and flash forward to today, uh, when I talk to the new staff who were onboarding at Housatonic Community College or Middlesex Community College or Northwestern Community College, I tell them that story that I, I could never in my wildest dreams have imagined that we would be able to deliver a case management model to all community college students in Connecticut. Um, we I saw the need the first day I stepped on the campus. I saw students in line. I saw frustration. I saw students not knowing where to go, um, not because the folks weren't working hard in those offices, just because there was three counselors for 7,000 students, right? And that just by virtue of the sheer numbers and how understaffed those offices were, we couldn't even dream of a case management model. And then here we are today, um, and we'll talk to you uh, throughout this interview about how we got to approval of that policy and, and then subsequent implementation.
0: Yeah, I like the analogy with the raft and, and and the river, but yes, great segue, and I think you gave a great kind of foundation in terms of what this um, episode is going to be about. And, you know, thank you both again for being here and it's nice to kind of get your backgrounds in higher ed. And I guess let's talk about that. You know, you kind of alluded to kind of the start of how this came about, but can you talk more about how, how the idea regarding creating a holistic advising approach, the guided pathways, reducing caseloads, like okay? kind of how this all started.
4: I mean, I'll just say my own personal experience, my, I'll never forget my first day at Middlesex Community College, I was the admissions instructor and I and I walked in and there was literally a line around the corner of the admissions office and it was like, welcome to college, here's your desk, here's a line of students who need to be advised. And I don't think I didn't even put my purse down at that moment. It was just really literally walking in the door, hitting the ground, running. And it struck me even from my first day that, you know, this this doesn't work. This is a very transactional, you know, in and out, what classes do you need? What's your placement test scores? Here's your schedule on your way. Um, because we were not appropriately staffed at that time to really have the really meaningful relationship we wanted to develop with students. So in the admissions office, when I was there, we were the de facto new student advisors which, you know, even from my scope is not a full-time advisor. I spent my first summer not doing my admissions director job and advising because we needed to have students get classes. And, you know, even then it really struck me that, you know, we're not doing this right. And it's not because people don't care. And it's not because we don't want to do it right. It's because we don't have the resources to to do it right. So when I got the call to come on board and work on this, I, I was slightly terrified. But again, it was one of those happy accidents in my own career where it was the opportunity to really take what I knew wasn't working from personal experience and, and take the opportunity and take the golden ticket and really make it better, not just at in my institution, but at all 12. So that was what really appealed to me about this work. The, the ability to, to make a potential, you know, life-changing experience for students and also making sure that we were staffing our colleges appropriately to provide those experiences to students. Oh yeah, and I, can
3: expand, I can expand upon that a little bit too. Um, you know, the touching back on that uh, first kind of conversation in 2017, there had been work going on in Connecticut around Guided Pathways um, for several years before that. The Student Success Center was established thanks to uh, funding through uh, Jobs for the Future. Um, and that Entity had kind of brought folks together and, and brought in best practices and ideas. And it was, it was good. It was sharing those ideas out. But it really took dedicated staff to do the planning and development work. And, you know, Gail and I were asked to lead uh, sup- what was then called support architecture. So we established um, through the Success Center three separate architectures, choice architecture, recruitment architecture, and support architecture. So two faculty members stepped away from their full-time roles to lead choice architecture. Uh, Recruitment was led by our system director of financial aid, a director of admissions, and a director of workforce development, uh, excuse me, a dean of workforce development, and Gail and I um, to lead support architecture. So that really, and and above the three architectures lived a guided pathways task force. Uh, Again, cross kind of discipline, cross functional included um, some president and CEO, um, cabinet members from the colleges, faculty, staff, um, and that task force um, was really the parent structure above those three architectures.
4: Well, no, we were very lucky. Um, you know, we it was it was the opportunity really of, of, of a lifetime from a professional career standpoint to really to take this, what everyone knew what wasn't working, and really build it. And Mike and I were very fortunate in the fact that we built, I think at the time it was capped around a 40 member team for holistic student support redesign. And it was membership across all 12 colleges. So you had advisors at all 12 colleges who were like, thank you for working on this because we we know that you're listening to what we actually need to do to, to better service our students. So we had advisors, we had career counselors, faculty, administrators, librarians, you name it. We had um, all different voices from across the 12 college campuses to really weigh in on their own experiences to help us really design a model that made sense. So it was it was slightly terrifying but very exciting at the same time.
3: Yeah, I mean and, and the other thing is when we talk with some of you know the leading institutions around the country who've done this work, they've done it on the fly. They've done it taking those five and ten hours away from their other work. And and when we describe our story to some of those folks, they say, wow, like we had, you know, a team of seven of us um, who were able to be focused on this solely. And that allowed us, you know, we, we put in our, our time too. We visited every single campus and presented on Guided Pathways as a concept. We talked to them about um, the other work that was going around, going on around the country. Um, we partnered up too. We had many great national partners who, who came to the table to support us. Achieving the Dream was one of those partners, uh, Jobs for the Future, the Community College Research Center, Um, National Center for Inquiry, all of those kind of folks who were foundational in some of the early research on guided pathways, we brought in to kind of semi-annual events and called everyone together um, to begin kind of planting uh, the seeds, watering the soil um, to understand what guided pathways was and how all of these fit together. Um, I'm sure we'll get into it later in the conversation, but holistic case management advising is just one policy of a suite of policies that were approved by our board of regents, um, and together um, they are really going to come together um, over the next several years to, to really make an impact.
2: And I'm, I'm just maybe before we kind of delve into say the the support ar- uh, architecture, I'm just wondering. I think some of our listeners, and certainly me being on the, the other side of the Atlantic, just in terms of the the twelve colleges. Um, what was it opt in or was that or what how what was the the process in in terms of you know getting people involved Mike
3: yeah certainly um so you know I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention in two thousand and seventeen our board of regents um adopted um a, a plan to bring twelve separately independently accredited community colleges together under a single accreditation called students first um simultaneously, they, um, in that same action, said that we will um, implement guided pathways at scale across each of the, the colleges. So that was going on and still is going on. The merger is a few years out still, um, to 2023 to be exact. Some of this work is leading out ahead of it, um, but to your question, it, it, it was voluntary. Um, we um, asked folks from uh, different colleges to make recommendations. We talked with presidents and CEOs. We asked folks who led councils, the, the folks who chair the Advising Leads Council, the folks who chaired, um, you know, other, other uh, statewide councils. Um, so we asked for representation and looked kind of to make sure that we had diverse um voices at the table. But the forty members were voluntary. We got together monthly. Um, and in addition to our monthly meetings, we held a, a several full day kind of um, planning and design institutes um, where often we'd bring in a national partner or we would facilitate those design institutes, For example, mapping kind of the student process. We looked at kind of how does a student come into the institution and move through enrollment pipeline to completion, um, thinking about how the, the different nuances are in each of the campuses and understanding where those best practices are. So we were looking for them on the campus. We were listening to kind of the national partners who, who introduced us to folks who were a couple steps ahead of us with this work. Um, we were fortunate enough to attend conferences, um, both in listen and present, um, and really start to develop some relationships with folks at some of the other community colleges who've been recognized with you know national awards for their advising models. So really, that was it was a, a, a group of volunteers. They stepped up and did this above and beyond their duty. So we are grateful to that 40 member team. That 40 member team, we realized when we started getting to kind of it's time to write a policy <laughs> that 40 authors might be a bit challenging. <laughs> I think at that point, Gail and I looked at each other and said, let's try to get it down to six or eight. Let's get a good cross section and, and, and ask for for some folks to, to step up and work with us on the on the actual drafting of the policy. But we didn't want to exclude the 40 members um, from input. So we actually intentionally first developed um, a, a set of guiding principles. Um, as a 40-member group, and all kind of came to consensus and agreement on what those guiding principles were. Um, and those became foundational to the pillars of the policy that really um, anchor and and ensure that we're going to get the resources and support and technology that we need to achieve the, the goals of the model.
0: Yeah. And so I guess with this, it's like you have a lot of communication, uh, you know, got to get buy-in with this. Was there any pushback in terms of, this this whole process with it, with this implementation.
4: Well, I mean, change, changes we know is always difficult, and I and I think in higher education sometimes change comes slower to us um, than perhaps other other um, professions. Um, but I think fundamentally, everyone knew that we needed to do something different. It's just a matter of getting from point A to point B. So I, I think um, when we put together our guiding principles, I mean, for example. There are principles you really can't argue with. Like, for example, degree and certificate seeking students should be assigned to an advisor at the college. We wanted to reduce the ratio of student to professional advisors because at at its peak, it was around 750 to one. And our goal was to reduce that to 250 to one. We want all of our students to develop a personalized academic and career plan with goals and strategies. And also, to introduce a technology platform to help students achieve success. So these are all things that people can fundamentally agree on. I mean, these, these are, you don't think that that are the right thing to do for students. And there are always questions, you know, regarding, well how, because, well, how are you going to do this? I mean, we, we get that you want to do it, but how are you actually going to accomplish that? So I think um, Mike and I made a very conscious effort, as well as our team, to make sure that we actually continue to visit the colleges and make sure we were keeping the communication lines open. So when the policy was introduced, um, there was a electronic feedback form where people can provide feedback regarding their thoughts on the policies areas. They thought we can take a closer look at, or they didn't like um, we also did like what we call a road show. Mike and I hit the road to, you know, any colleges that would have us, we would go and present the policy and have an open camp- campus forum. Because a lot of times I think what we found is people question change when they don't really understand the policy. So it was really our responsibility to clearly articulate the policy, the purpose of it, the benefits to students, and how this will actually benefit you as an advisor to have a reduced caseload as well. So it was really our responsibility to to clearly communicate this, this information to really kind of ease the anxiety level that comes about with change. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Cracking the college admissions code just got easier. I'm Rebecca Gordon, your go-to fictional college admissions counselor for the rich and famous. Tune into the admissions game, Satire Edition, and uncover my top secrets for sure-fire Ivy League admission. Ditch the old Photoshop your face onto a water polo hunk trick. We reveal all the latest loopholes. So laugh and learn with the admissions game wherever you podcast.
3: I'll I'll tag on to that, too, and say that I think, you know, there was maybe more doubt than resistance. And still today, there uh, are kind of folks who might um, doubt how we're going to pull this off. Right. To go from 750 to one to 250 to one was about quadrupling our workforce, and advising, where are the resources going to come from? <laughs> and, and still to this day, that is kind of uh, the the anxiety and a little bit of a fear that will this actually come to fruition. Um, you'll you'll hear about our implementation in the in the subsequent podcast, but um, it is moving along. And and part of it was that we intentionally were specific in the policy development to put that as bullet one, that we will reduce caseloads from 750 to 250 to one. Um, And the board uh, 100% (laughs) unanimously endorsed that. Um, And they um, make decisions about how finances are allocated throughout the colleges. So um, that wasn't intentionally uh, specific. And um, we believe, you know, really got us to a place where Folks started to believe, and they're starting to see this implementation, and now um, it, it is coming to fruition.
2: And so, yeah, you, you have the the guiding principles, and you're beginning like the the formulation of of a roadmap, I suppose. Uh, it, it sounds like. Can you talk to us, I suppose, and and to listeners, what what came next uh, after after that step?
3: I would step back maybe just slightly before the guiding principles too, and say that. Um, in addition to our um, regular meetings and, and our um, our planning work with the team, we also um, went out and conducted student focus groups. We held, I think, four student focus groups across um, the campuses and, and heard from students about their experience. And uh, we also looked at data. We took a look at our SESI our and SENSE data, on uh, new students and continuing students and engagement in the community colleges. And and advising, having an advising connection was important, but not many students had it. Um, and, And part of that, too, was understanding that this model, the guided pathways advising model, does not replace faculty advising. The faculty advising will only be enhanced through this model and that faculty can then be more focused on talking about their discipline. Um, more focused about talking about differentiation in career based on the type of degree that the student is pursuing, um, where they have that expertise, and that these advisors can then kind of lift some of the administrative burden off of the faculty advisor where there's a hold on the student's account, or something's going wrong with financial aid, or there's an issue outside of school altogether that is interfering with the student's performance. So we really, you know still to this day are working to make sure we're communicating and being clear about kind of the roles and that it is additive, it is not uh, replacing uh, faculty advising. So we believe that eventually we'll bring more support uh, to the students from both faculty and staff. So I I don't know that I answered your question exactly. You said, so what was next after the roadmap? we we uh, traveled to a holistic student support institute and kind of hibernated <laughs> for a while and uh, and hunkered down and began kind of putting um, words on paper and 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 really spent a good month or two with the writing process and it was um, intense and it was consuming and it was Gail and I and we would be remiss if we didn't mention Ben Wong who was our policy fellow. Um, he's, he's now at the ACLU in Richmond, Virginia, um, doing policy work down there, but Ben, Gail, and I together kind of tri authored the policy. Our policy development team helped us create the outline. Um, they said we took the guiding principles, the eight of us got it to an outline form, and then the three of us put words to page. and, and, It went through many channels. We were uh, lucky to have support from the Student Success Center, the the executive director there, and several other colleagues who had worked with. So our managers of Guided Pathways outside of our area were also supports for us. They looked at the document, they reviewed the outline, they read drafts of the policy. So um, there was a lot of collaboration. um, and, And as Gail mentioned, when we got it to a place where um, we wanted broader feedback. We then opened it up to to larger audiences.
4: Right. and I would say we were very we were very lucky because you know, and I would say to other colleges or institutions thinking about radically changing their advising, I, I, I'm very grateful to the fact we were able to do this on a full time basis because to to really put the time and effort that this deserved, it it needed to be full time. You can't split your energies between this. And whatever your full time job is on the side, like it, it, it would never work. You, so we were very, very fortunate in the fact that we were given the time to really develop this thoroughly and completely and thoughtfully uh, in order to really implement it well. So we were very, very fortunate to have that full time experience in order to actually accomplish this project.
0: Yeah, and it's it's nice that you you're saying that you have the time you you're able to develop the resources to it because I got to think of. Many times or other institutions where it's here, implement this now. I don't know how you're going to do it, but just figure it out. Is there will there be resources? Uh, let us know what you need. Well, I don't know what I need until I can actually research. And a lot of times, there's not even that part. So it is nice to hear that it is something that was really thoroughly thought through.
4: Yes, I and mean, a lot of times we are we just by virtue of how we function, we are we are more reactive than proactive. So to your point, like here's a policy, go. And figure it out later, whereas we were actually saying, okay, we want to develop policy. Here's the time you need to actually do this correctly. And it was it was very refreshing because I think if we had not been given that time and that space away from our full-time roles, I don't think it would have been done as well as, it, as the ultimate product if it was.
3: I think it's important to note, too, that there, there was tremendous crossover between the three architectures. So we kind of sat in and shared on each other's work and even co-led some of the work as well. A college and career success course, CCS 101, was a reimagined first-year experience course um, that Gail and I led with the two faculty leads. So there was a joint kind of subcommittee um, to work on that. Um, we partnered with um, institutional research to craft a key performance indicators policy based on some momentum metrics work that was coming out of CCRC um, and the folks down there. Um, There was uh, the development of uh, meta majors or areas of study as we call them in Connecticut that the choice architecture worked on, the faculty led group. However, we were significant um, voices in the room and that cross pollination and to be able to work so closely as a team orchestrated by by our leader, Greg DeSantis, um, was really valuable. Um, to To ensuring that the policies worked with each other and worked together
2: and i mean the so the the, the forty became eight became three and then you develop the the, the policies and and you're working across but I, I suppose in terms of of how that looked in in terms of a sort of a an organizational structure as such what how, what what way did that work? Um, I, I don't know whether Mike or, or Gail do you either you want to maybe talk in terms of um, what, what way it played out because you know yeah yeah policies are are, are are one thing. procedures and implementation have to follow on from that.
4: Sure. well I mean I can take kind of the policy part and I know the, the implementation is definitely more Mike's role than mine uh, at this point. But you know, it wasn't just creating a policy and, and being done. Um, it was definitely a, a cycle to actually have the policy approved. So once the draft was done and ready to be shared, as we said, we did forums across the state. We had an electronic feedback form as well. Um, we also did presentations to our student advisory council, our statewide council for the community colleges, our advising leaves, the academic deans, our deans of students, our community college council of presidents, we collected feedback from all these different stakeholders before we actually moved through the approval process of the policy because we wanted to make sure that when the policy moved forward, we had known, we had presented it to as many stakeholders as possible, collected their feedback, and were very thoughtful about it before actually going through the the navigation, the approval process. So we did that, and then we went through um, the various governing bodies at the time. So for us, it was our guide pathways task force, which is the overarching body for the work we were doing. And then we moved it through things with the Academic and Student Affairs Committee and finally to the Board of Regents for approval. So the approval process was not quick. It was definitely um, a several months long process. But again, I think it was done the right way to make sure all the stakeholders were really informed in the loop. And again, really honoring the commitment we made to communicate with them uh, about the policy before it actually moved to the approval piece.
3: I would add to that, I guess, right in the middle of the approval process comes COVID-19. So we had the policy in what we thought was a finished form around December of 2019. And it's going through the channels, December, January, February, March hits, COVID hits A little stall. However, in April of 2020, the board acted on the policy and did approve the policy in April of 2020. Um, And and during that time, uh, through that winter into the spring, there was implementation planning that Gail and I started to lay the groundwork for. How are we going to bring this to scale? Right away, we knew we couldn't do it all at once for many reasons, bandwidth, <laughs> too much change, not yeah, enough resources, you know, all the good
4: stuff. Yes.
3: <laughs> so we, we envisioned it in kind of three phases, phase one, two, and three, where we split up kind of uh, the, the, the size of the schools and distributing them through the regions and kind of um, looked at it over a three-year period. Um, We also started uh, the work of um, laying out a set of competencies. That was the next critical step for us. So Gail and I spent a a good chunk of a a few months working really hard on developing advisor competencies. Um, We we were fortunate to have some guidance from some of our national partners and, and got to look around. We didn't need to reinvent the wheel completely, though kind of. Did, Um, But we developed our our Guided Pathways um, competencies, which fed into the Guided Pathways uh, Level 1 and Level 2 job descriptions. So we were intentional, too, about thinking about it in this way. Most of our colleges, in fact, all of them had a a director of advising or counseling. Many of those were vacant, um, but had that position and then had advisors or counselors under them. There was never really an associate director or assistant director, which was interesting. I always, it always struck me as interesting that in admissions and financial aid and everyone else had assistant, associate, associate, and there was one director and that director advised 90% of the time because the line is there and the students are coming and you need to kind of do it kind of uh, to keep up, (laughs) to keep pace. So we were pretty uh, intentional about how we were thinking about the structure, both from uh, kind of providing the right size team for supervision, right? And also allowing folks a career ladder. So the Guided Pathways level one advisor um, has a a Guided Pathways level two uh, above it. And at some of the larger schools that level two will supervise a team of six or eight GPA ones. Um, And above the GPA two is the campus advising lead. Above that is three regional advising directors. So we also knew that having all 12 of the campus advising leads report to the associate vice president um, is not a, it's not a good model to have 12 direct reports. You wouldn't be able to give them kind of the attention and support they needed to make this successful. So we thought through kind of what that organizational structure looked like. Uh, began working on those competencies, developing draft job descriptions, working a lot with HR. It started to turn more of you know daily meetings, <laughs> weekly meetings with HR, kind of flushing out job descriptions, thinking through um, that process.
0: Yeah, and I think you know you're looking at everything, right? You're looking at the students, you're looking at your advisors, looking at management, the career advancement as well. Does the policy also take into account addressing equity gaps uh, with students?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So um, the policy, um, in addition to the policy, we crafted an equity impact statement um, that is addendum to the policy that speaks to our intentionality of closing uh, disparities between our Latinx and Black African-American students and our white students. Um, Our equity gap is one of the largest in the country. Um, and we are conscious of that and thinking about the design of the case management model and how some students may need a weekly check-in and others may just need to be seen once a semester, right? So understanding that the model needed to be built kind of in a flexible way so that the students aren't just getting a pair of shoes, they're getting a pair of shoes that fit them, right? So that was really um, central to our work and thinking about how we can help each student create a plan know that they have a person to go to Um, that that person is the guided pathways advisor and or the faculty advisor the guided pathways advisor can monitor their progress on uh, the plan intervene and support the student Um, so I I often describe it this way you know our, our our old advising model was Uh, course selection, registration, degree audit. That was kind of the main part of our work. Um, It really flips the paradigm, this model, to that's probably 20% of our our new models work. The other 80% is outreach. It's coaching, it's mentoring, it's check-ins. It's it's a simple check-in through text or email that, hey, I'm here if you have any questions. How was your first week of classes? Is everything going all right? Let me know if you want to chat. Just very um, uh, much a change in, 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 in the paradigm of how advising services have historically been delivered at our colleges.
5: Stay with us. We'll be right back.
1: You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start.
4: And again, that is that it's a flip from that reactive model that I think we're also—it's so so ingrained—that's how we do things—to that proactive model. Because you know, a student who needs help isn't necessarily the one that's going to reach out to you for help. So, if we're being proactive about it, we're actually going to you know address the issue before it becomes an issue and and really help the student succeed.
3: Yeah, and I, I would. We'd also be remiss if we didn't mention, you know, some of the work by Carp by and Stacy that look at the SIP framework, um, the strategic, sustained, integrated, proactive and personalized. Right. So that was a, a foundational kind of concept that was built into our policy and helped us as we drafted the policy and thought through um, how uh, we were going to bring this model to scale
2: and obviously this you know this has been uh, quite quite the process yeah I mean, we go go back to to talk about like the you know the, the genesis of it and, and and going all the all the way through i'm just wondering for our listeners out there because i mean it is it is fascinating and i know that there's probably loads and uh, you know we only have so much time but are there are there takeaways or are there insights or are there things that like you know seem obvious now that that weren't so obvious or, or learnings that that y- you know you would share with any listeners who are saying like God, this is something that i I'd, I'd love to to really look like look at look at approaching this what are the maybe any any takeaways that that you would offer um in that
4: I mean, I, I think for me, one of the key takeaways that, you know, I, I had to learn as we went through this process is even if I thought I had clearly communicated something to someone, you need to communicate it more. I think what's kind of the takeaway, because, you know, there's it's so critical that if to to do a shift like we have done or in the process of doing, you have to make sure you're communicating each step of the process. So there's really there's no confusion There's no misinformation being messaged to someone else about a policy or a procedure or a practice. So even if you think you're communicating enough, I would suggest communicating more but by more, I don't mean wordy. I mean, effectively. So, you know, there's, I would say there's succinct and there's verbose. like if you can say the same thing in 10 words you can do in 50, do it in 10 because people will stop reading after word 12. So keep it succinct, clear, and to the point, but make sure you're clearly communicating so that every step of the way, people know where you are in the process.
3: I would add to that too. Maybe, you know, take your time, um, the planning, And allowing that process to take a little longer um, I believe will have a a, a much um, more successful implementation. Um, Oftentimes, uh, Matt, as you mentioned, there's a rush to do something. It worked there. Let's do it here. Well, take the time. Put a cross-functional team together. Free up some of their time. It's worth it to step away for a bit. Um, and, and ensure that there is a cross-functional team and that they're, they're, they're learning from their own practices and learning the national best practices and, and, and take that time. Um, uh, that, that rush to action, I think, comes back to bite us because you end up dumping resources into something, and if it fails, those are lost resources. So in my mind, it, it is cross-functionality. It's having uh, senior leadership, mid-level managers, frontline staff and faculty at the table. It's giving them that time and space to talk, discuss, think, and plan.
0: Yeah, it's just like you're saying, have that time, plan it out. It's okay. You don't have to rush through everything. And also kind of to, to Gail's point with the wording, I mean, in journalism speak, it's don't bury the lead. So definitely a great advice with that. And as we kind of wind down with this portion of the episode, what does the implementation time frame look like? Is it like a phase implementation? How's it all looking?
3: That's a great question. So that, you know, has shifted and changed. I think that's another lesson that I, I, w- I should have mentioned in the, the question before is flexibility. Um, we are used to having things be one way and kind of stays that way. Um, we've had to be very flexible and we've had to adjust on the fly and, Throw a lot of uh, uh, drafts in the trash and start over throughout the process. And same thing can be said about the implementation. We had laid out a three-year implementation um, that that was um, in each year, you know, four campuses, four camp, four campuses, three campuses, and then five. I think was our original plan to do it in stages over three years. Um, the early part of that got cut into with COVID. Um, and then came along some higher ed relief act dollars um, that were able to be leveraged to uh, support this. Um, so over the last couple months, probably back spring of twenty twenty one, I you know I was approached by by our our leadership at the college and said, "How fast could you bring this to scale?" And I said, "Wait, how fast?" And they said, "Yes, how fast?" They said. 18 months would be a stretch, but I think we could, we could try to pull it off. Um, So now um, we've adjusted our kind of three year phase in approach. Um, We have brought three colleges to scale with their advisors. um, And we did that from in in about six months. Um, Then our next group of schools is, is five, in phase two, but phase two will happen this fall, and then the final four will happen in the spring of 2022. So the goal now is by June of 2022, all 12 campuses are are scaled with their advisors, um, and that we're assigning caseload uh, to each of those advisors. A piece kind of that we haven't touched on is really, and, and Gail mentioned it about her first day at Middlesex, where you kind of just handed the catalog. And I reflect back often on my experience uh, learning to advise. And it really was being given a catalog and being able to sit next to someone who had been doing it a while and ask a lot of questions. So right away, you know, we knew if we're going to bring on this many new advisors that we were going to need to think carefully and plan a professional learning and training program. So that has been um, central kind of to the first phase um, implementation and will be throughout the life of the program. And this isn't just for the newly hired folks. This is ongoing professional learning that uh, we will sustain throughout the time that we deliver the Guided Pathways Advising Model. There was a conscious effort to uh, identify a director of training and professional learning. Uh, That position was just recently hired and we're eagerly awaiting um, that member to join our team. Um, you'll hear in, in the next episode uh, the, the version 1.0 that we created of the asynchronous modules, but that really um, is going to be kind of only taken to the next level. And we're really placing a focus on uh, professional learning and training for the staff. So by June next year, if we're, if we're talking again next fall, um, I'm, I'm hopeful to report back to you and confident that we'll, we'll be at scale at all 12 of the colleges um, with a 250 to 1 ratio for, for staff to a student.
2: Um, Mike, uh, you, I think you're going to stick around for the next interview, but conscious that uh, we will be moving into a new phase. But there, for listeners, you know, I think there will be lots of takeaways from this, but there will be loads of... I I imagine there might be some people who are like, oh, I don't want more info, or they might be at a, a stage where you know, they're thinking be great to to pick uh, you know your brains and draw draw on some of your experiences. Are there ways that listeners can get in touch with you to to gain some of that that insight uh, if they if they wish to do so?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'd be more than happy to uh, talk with folks who are interested. They could reach me um, by sending me an email um, at my first initial and last name, so m b u c c i l l i. At comnet, c o m m n e t dot edu. I would also point folks to uh, the, the section um, through our system office, Guided Pathways has its own section to, to really take a closer look at the policy. Um, there's a suite of policies that have been approved, as well as this uh, holistic case management advising policy.
4: Yeah, I think we're happy to talk to anyone because you know it's one of those things like you don't you're never gonna know what it's like unless you've experienced it yourself in the whole process. So I think having lived this for now, I think this this January, it'll be four years since since we started this work. Um I think I, I'm certainly happy to talk to someone about the beginning stages of the process and the planning process, and then I will leave it to Mike and his team for the implementation piece.
3: Yeah, I mean I'll I'll add there too. It you mentioned we went from forty to eight down to three and um, you know last summer Gail and I both applied for and, and were hired as associate vice presidents and and then we were separated. <laughs> we often joke that you know we call it hicMA holistic case management advising was our baby yes. right we, 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 we delivered this baby when it um, when it was approved by the board and then I was there with the infant as a single dad. <laughs> <laughs> um, until I was able to bring on um, the three regional advising directors, who uh, quickly became uh, outstanding parents to our, our, our policy um, as it's grown into implementation of the Guided Pathways Advising Program. So, um, in our next episode, you'll get to meet two of the three regional advising directors. Um, one of them, Kathleen Ahern, actually had an actual baby <laughs> and is is out on maternity leave right now. But you will. Uh, get to meet the other uh, parents of of the implementation work.
2: Well, thank just all that remains for the end of this particular section is to thank both of you. Gail and Mike, it's been really fascinating to to gain insights uh, into the work that you have undertaken and uh, to hear all about your uh, expertise and experiences. So thanks for taking the time to join myself and Matt today.
4: No, thank you. This was fun. We're happy to be here.
2: It's been a pleasure. Thanks to Gail and Michael for sharing insights into the establishment of a guided pathways model from planning and identification to support architecture, to policies and procedures. It was fascinating to hear about the processes and all the steps involved along the way.
0: Before we get to part two of our episode, let's check with Dane Zanowski from Temple University to find out what's the latest on Dane's desk on our Adventures in Advising YouTube channel.
6: Hello, Adventures in Advising podcast listeners. This is Dane Zanowski coming to you from Dane's Desk, the new YouTube video series as a spinoff of the Adventures in Advising podcast. I want to talk about some great videos that we have for you. This past week, our guest was Banks Blair. He is the incoming chair of the Advisor Training and Development Advising Community, and he talks about a very important topic of advisor self-care. And then the video coming up next uh, next week will be with Jake Rudy, who also talks about advisor self-care. Again, this is a very important topic and something I can, you know, encourage our listeners and, and viewers to really think about how you're taking care of yourself so you can take care of the students that you advise. If you want to connect with me, feel free to do so through Facebook or LinkedIn. If you have ideas about future topics for Dane's Desk, Or if you want to be a guest on Dane's Desk, feel free to connect with me. And as always, keep advising.
0: All right, Thanks, Dane. And check out the current episode as well as past episodes of Dane's Desk on our YouTube channel at Adventures in Advising. These are short style interviews with those in academic advising where you get quick sound advice and tidbits to add to your advising toolbox. Now we're back with the second part of our interview. Previously, uh, we were chatting about the history of what uh, Connecticut State is doing with their community colleges and implementation of guided pathways. And for this one, we welcome back Marco Bucilli. Welcome, Michael. And also we have Dr. Brian Capinos, who's also a returning guest to our podcast. When we last spoke with Brian, he was the assistant academic dean at the College of Our Lady of the Elms. Now, Brian is the regional advising director of the Northwest region for Connecticut State Community College. Brian holds a doctoral degree in educational leadership from the University of Hartford. Brian's research and publications are focused on advising systems, middle management, and the coordination of advising services within post secondary institutions. Brian, welcome back to the podcast.
1: Great to be here, everyone.
0: Yeah, and next up, we have Dr. Lisella Arbuleta is the Regional Advising Director for the Connecticut State Community College's Capital East region in this role. Lisella is responsible for the implementation of the CSCU Holistic Case Management Advising Policy and the scaling oversight and operation of the Guided Pathways Advising Program at Capital, Manchester, Middlesex, Three Rivers, and Quinibog Community College's <laughs> Prior to this role, Lisella was the acting director of of counseling and wellness at Gateway Community College. In addition, she was the director of GCC's Family Economic Security Program and served as the campus retention specialist from 2015 to 2017. Lisella holds a doctoral degree in leadership and innovation from New York University, a master of science degree in clinical mental health counseling and a bachelor of arts degree in liberal studies with concentrations in history and psychology from Southern Connecticut State University and is a proud Gateway Community College alum. Welcome to the podcast.
5: Thank you, happy to be here.
0: And lastly, we have Michael Gomans, who currently serves as the Director of Student Success Technology for the Connecticut State Community College, which includes overseeing the implementation, oversight, and all functional aspects for the technology platforms within Student Success Management. Prior to joining Connecticut State, Michael spent eight years at the University of Hartford in various roles, including time with admissions, the College of Education, nursing, and health professions, and the Division of Student Success. His most recent role was of the assistant director and first-year advisor for the Center of Student Success, advising an average caseload of 100 first-year students and serving as the functional lead for the student success platform utilized by the institution. Michael also serves as an adjunct faculty member, teaching undergraduate and graduate courses in education, human development, and technology. Welcome to the podcast as well. Thanks for having me,
7: Matt.
2: We are delighted to welcome our uh, three new guests and, and welcome Michael back. Uh, I think the the first part of the. This was really fascinating. I have no doubt this will be as well. One of the things that we do like to do is to give our listeners the opportunity to get to know you a little bit um, before we we delve into to the topic. Um, Lisa, I might start with you. Um, just in terms of a, a potted history uh, in, in in your work in in higher education, uh, could you talk us uh, through? I suppose how you found yourself where you are now.
5: Yes, absolutely. Um, as Matt mentioned, I am a proud community, uh, Connecticut State Community College um, alum. And while I was finishing my bachelor's degree under the leadership of Michael Buccilli, actually, I uh, was hired as a part of the new student advising and registration, which is really where my start with advising um, began and really my passion for um, advising. From that role, I, under Michael's leadership as well, I became the student uh, retention specialist, where I really focused on marginalized populations, um, overseeing the male minority initiative and some achievement coaching um, models that we put together at Gateway. during that time, I was finishing my master's in clinical mental health counseling. Uh, At the time, counseling and advising went hand in hand. So while my primary role was mental health counseling, I was still very much um, advising. And it was through those different roles that I realized the impact that academic advising has on students and how crucial it really is to our student population, and more specifically, as we make our way to the holistic case management advising model, but really being in that space. And I Identifying that this HICMA policy that we now have, that there was such a need for it. So uh, in that role, I really prided myself on being a voice for the students and really communicating the need for such a model to leaders such as Michael for him to do what he did at the system level and implementing um, the policy. So that's sort of my trajectory. And now here I am as the regional advising director, overseeing the implementation of the policy for five of the 12 um, Connecticut State community colleges and, and really enjoying the work and really seeing how all the work that all of us have done all of this year sort of come to fruition. And um, yeah, it's exciting. It's exciting stuff. Thank you.
2: Absolutely. And uh, Ma- Michael Bocelli, we we, ha- we had uh, we heard from you in the, in the last episode. So I might go to the other uh, Michael. <laughs> uh, can, can you talk us through I suppose, uh, how you found yourself uh, in, in your current role?
7: Yeah, certainly. So I, uh, like Matt mentioned earlier, I spent uh, most of my time in higher ed at the University of Hartford. Um, I'm an alum from Hartford. I have a bachelor's degree in health sciences and physical therapy. And after graduating, I was fortunate enough to work in the undergraduate admissions office and spent some time recruiting students to come to Hartford and and really got a taste for what working in higher ed was like um, and was immediately attracted to staying in higher ed. So I did. I finished my master's in education um, and actually started teaching elementary school here in Connecticut um, and really quickly realized why I loved working with uh, those students, I really missed working in higher education. So uh, the first opportunity that was presented to me was actually to come back to Hartford. Um, so I took it. I was the Collegiate Director of Student Success for the College of Education, Nursing and Health Professions. Um, big, long title for a lot of miscellaneous jobs. I was responsible for um, academic advising, uh, course evaluations and registration, um, making sure students graduated on time, uh, recruitment events for the college. Um, and just about three years ago, the university made a shift to a first year advising model. Um, they put a lot of resources into what is now their division of student success, and they created uh, a combined services office um, that I was fortunate enough to join as an assistant director. Um, they had uh, they were aware of my work with the technology and advising on campus. So I was given the opportunity to lead the implementation of their holistic case management software that they were using for advising um and then i saw this opportunity with connecticut state and at at that time i thought i want to be doing more i want to work with a wider population and and this was a a perfect opportunity combined all the things i really liked about my career um, working with technology working with students um, and working with this population in particular so i was fortunate enough to meet michael and lasella and brian and and they were uh happy enough to offer me an opportunity on the team and I'm glad I took it. And um, I've been here since April, uh, overseeing the technology that we're working on, really excited about it and I'm having a really good time.
2: Great, we're looking forward to chatting to you further about that. And uh, Brian, I, I know you're a returning guest, but it's been a, a little while and uh, you're wearing a, a different hat. So it might be worthwhile just uh, giving listeners the opportunity, a potted history of uh, of your, uh, your higher ed background. So, so
1: the, the last time that we spoke, um, we were talking a lot about advising systems and middle management and some of the research and uh, that I had done with my dissertation and kind of what better way to fall into all of that work than to fall into working for the state of Connecticut and working with Mike Puccilli and his team, uh, you know, working on this holistic case management policy and, and really the development and redesigning the entire twelve community colleges. So. Um, you know, I when I saw the opportunity online for this position, although I had greatly appreciated my time as, as the assistant academic dean at Elms College, uh, I could not not try for this position. And so I was, I, I gave it a shot and I was lucky enough to, to join the team in January. And I've, I've been here ever since. And it's been fascinating work. It's, it's absolutely exciting to be a part of this kind of uh, this movement to best practices in advising with the state of Connecticut, to, to redesign an entire advising system statewide. Um, and I really think that this work is going to set the groundwork for future states and other colleges to look at our work and look at some of the challenges and great successes that we're going to have and, and really be able to kind of shift into a way that really supports their students better. And so, for me, I'm just excited to be here. I'm, I'm still, you know, teaching at the University of Hartford. I'm still writing. Uh, I have some, hopefully, some publications coming down the line in the future. And I just had one exciting one published with Nakata uh, in June. So I'm just happy to be here, happy to be a part of this and happy to kind of take my knowledge and expertise and, and really help the students uh, of the Connecticut Community College system.
0: Welcome, everyone. And we really appreciate all of you being here to continue this conversation. Now, we heard from Michael and Gail um, earlier about how this idea started, the buy-in, the communication and teamwork that's involved, how the policy developed, the goals, the add-on to help address equity gaps, and also the advisor competencies and guided pathways. And I know we'll definitely get to the technology aspect in a moment, but um, maybe we start with talking more about the kind of the conceptualization of the guided pathways. Um, so who wants to take that?
1: I'd be happy to start. I think I'd like to give the listeners a sense into what it was like when I, you know, you first discussed this. I remember sitting in our meetings in January and thinking, listening to Mike and all his wonderful big ideas and being like, how are we going to do this? <laughs> like, how are we actually going to like together as this small team on on Microsoft Teams in middle of January, like develop an entire curriculum, like designed for professional learning and growth for all of the employees uh, in the community college system in Connecticut. And for me, it was, I mean, it was, it was a wonderful challenge, but it was overwhelming. I mean, where do you start? You know, I mean, we had the, some ideas and things that Mike, you know, provided us with his leadership and guidance, but really it was, it was LaSella and I, and our other regional advising director, Cata Hearn, who, we're kind of just sitting in meetings together talking about like where do we begin? What's what scholarship do we pull? Where do we look for content? How do we if how could we if, have an opportunity to just start fresh with training across the board and what do advisors need to know about supporting students? I mean, it was it was honestly overwhelming at first, but I think that as we got into the work and we continued to move along, and I'll pass it over to Lucella for her thoughts, I think it it really started to unfold where we started to focus on, on really our student populations and what our advisors need to know about working with a diverse range of students in the state of Connecticut. It evolved into discussing uh, our mission and vision for revamping advising and getting our advisors that information as well. And thinking about uh, thinking about advising practice as a whole and, and leaning on resources you know like Nakata and a lot of the information they have as far as how do we work with our students? How do we talk with our students? How do we coach our students? Um, and and overall, I think that we've put forth for version 1.0, I think a fabulous program that uh, we're continuing to build on with, with the assistance of, of Michael Goins and our, our new director of, of technology um, and our professional uh, learning and professional development. I think I butchered that title, but I'm excited about it. I think there's a lot of awesome components to it. I, and I and lucella was with us the whole time on it. So Lacella,
5: yeah, very, very well said. One thing uh, I I would like to add, one thing we leveraged really well was we identified amongst the regional advising directors and, of course, uh, Michael Buccelli, identifying what our strengths were and how we were going to take our individual strengths and what lift we ourselves could could take, right? Advising theory. I wasn't in the weeds the way that Brian was. We relied really heavily um, on him before we had Michael Goleman's for technology. That was uh, Kat Hearn's sort of jam, as I say. And she took, you know, that on. And I'm really passionate and and in the weeds with diversity, equity, inclusion, and how that translates to marginalized populations and what, you know, new research was saying. So that was one of the things that we did pretty early on, which, um, and I agree with Brian, it was really overwhelming. How do you do this? How do you conceptual But that really helped. And then I would add that the other thing we did was really lean on our network. So that was our network within Connecticut State, who was doing what, who was doing it well, who was willing to consult with us, relied heavily on NACADA um, and other professional organizations to sort of help put our, we had our mission and vision, but to really help visualize that and identify sort of what steps we needed to take to make it more real. Um, So those are the the sort of micro level things that I I think we were able to do that really helped us. And it really helped with, you know, leadership matters and the relationship we have with each other and sort of identifying that early on, we were all in this together, really helped us um, sort of come together as a team, you know, none of us with our egos, our ego set aside and say, what can I sort of take the lead on? Where can I lean on you? Where can we lean on others? And that translated really well for version
3: 1.0. I might add a comment in too, um, though slightly different in kind of the phase we were in, you know, that these are the same things Gail and I grappled with in the early days of kind of getting the group together and getting to a policy kind of in the room, looking at each other. So that kind of productive struggle of figuring out what each other's strengths were, I, I, I saw it happening with Cap, Brian and Lacella. And and it was intentional to put the three of them together because they all bring such tremendous strengths and difference and diversity. And together, um, those struggles produced what I believe is a a phenomenal product for our first uh, version of the professional learning program and the uh, onboarding and the 306090 plans, like a whole lot of great ideas came out of giving them that time and space and and you know I was there, and I and I joined them on, on on many meetings, but they 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 had that productive struggle, kind of that silence, and kind of figuring out where to go and what do we do first. And I had been through it, so I, I was there, kind of as a voice of, "It's going to be okay. Um, you guys all have what it takes to pull this off."
2: And I I, I suppose I, I I like that uh, you know they that piece around the conceptualization and, and the team coming together and figuring it out and what the strengths are and, and, and where you're going to go and, and drawing on the resources that, that you needed. I mean, that, that's all part of it. But can you take us to the, the next level then? I mean, you, you had the struggle, but then you got to get into the, the nuts and bolts. So you got you to look at the the program development and, and the curriculum. Can you talk to us a, a little bit about that? Yeah, I think that, Really, what came
1: down to it is is that once we had our curriculum developed, um, we need to look at a a platform to do this. And I think Michael Gomans would probably be best to discuss a little bit more about this, but it's once you like hash out you know what you're gonna do on a on a giant word document of the curriculum and the focus on mission and vision and advising theory and diversity equity and inclusion and student populations and ethics and advising, you have to actually put this somewhere. Like so that people can access it in some sort of way and and deliver this training. and I think that our partnership with our technology platform and really kind of navigating that whole perspective is something that Michael has had the lead on and, and and really knows it like the back of his hand. So I'd actually turn it over to Mike to walk us through kind of those challenges and how do we actually take this this great idea that we finally put on paper and actually execute it?
7: Yeah, um, so we partnered with a company out of Colorado called Innovative Educators, uh, who specialize in online services for orientation, um, support and training for faculty and staff. Um, and I came in uh, in April at what I now consider the perfect time. Uh, it was right in the middle of the eye of the storm when uh, Michael and Lisella and Brian and Kat were in the middle of developing all this curriculum. And it was so evident and clear that each of them had um, such a strong passion for figuring this problem out and presenting it in a way that was most realistic um, and adaptable for all the faculty and staff that we're going to have this presented to in the coming months. So um, I was excited to get on board with Innovative Educators. Um, That platform uh, allowed us the most amount of adaptability in terms of how we would deliver courses Um, it was important to us that we used multiple modalities to deliver the trainings that we had come up with so whether they were articles publications um, case scenarios powerpoints um, and, and a variety of videos from different resources that we wanted staff to review and train and be assessed on. Um, This platform uh, gave us the option to do that. So uh, like Brian and Lisella both mentioned, I was happy to take the lead on crafting all of that. Really what I was doing was taking all the good work that they had done um, and laying it out like a big map and putting it in an order uh, that made the most sense for our staff moving forward. Um, We have at the moment for version 1.0, 25 modules, um, which I think were all crafted really purposefully and clear. We have, I would say, just about 90% of our staff at the moment done with version 1.0, which is fantastic. The platform itself gives us the opportunity to look at reports every week, see how staff are interacting with those modules. Um, We've built in both pre- and post-assessments to measure their learning, um, and we've even built in survey options to really make sure that everyone that's being um, tasked with looking at these modules, has a fair opportunity to give feedback um, and to let us know what's working, what's not, what would they like to see changed, what's different. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's that's probably the broadest overview I can give you about the technology and where we are at the moment.
5: I would like to add something, if I may, um, to piggyback off of what Brian shared when we talk about sort of conceptualizing in our curriculum. And he he gave you an example of some of our uh, modules, if you will, right, are advising fundamentals and equity-centered practice. And I think it's important for listeners, right, we're talking about community colleges. So when we are putting this together and we are referring back to what the literature and what research shows, a lot of it is geared towards four-year institutions. So we had to take that, really deconstruct it, what is going to work and what is going to translate well to the community colleges, and then look at our community college or each of our institutions and their data, what has worked, what isn't working, and really marry the two and that is really um really important to note, because it's not like you go out there and you get these frameworks and you just build off of that framework. You take an existing framework, you look at it. It's not necessarily designed for community colleges. So how do we take that and how do we redesign that and make it work for our student population? And we look through that lens for each of the modules that we went through, and it led to some really robust d- discussions. Right? I'm I'm a scholar. I, I like to to lean pretty heavily on existing research, but also holding myself accountable to saying if this has if this is not working in it hasn't worked, what is within our control to work? And where is that space to, as like uh, Michael Buccilli likes to say, like to make some mistakes and, and and to break things, if you will, so that we can get it right for our student population.
0: And I guess going off of that, is there anything like when you were looking at the the research and the literature that was more geared for four-year that when you did deconstruct it, you said we can actually connect this to the two-year community colleges and and what we're trying to do?
5: Yeah, and, and I would shoot this back to Brian, but for me, sort of my, um, aha moment is, is advising theory, right? And the relationship of advising to student success was really, um, sort of fundamental and that hasn't shifted for me. So that that really, yes, it works for the four year, um, but that was really important to have that foundation for um, the two year, the community colleges. I would say where we sort of shifted is where we get more specific to populations, but that's where we have our modules for specific student populations. But I would say overall advising theory, the relationship between advising and student outcomes that remain the same and sort of untouched for, for me personally.
1: Yeah, I think as well. I mean, you know, unfortunately, and this is a scene across the United States, a lot of community colleges and especially advising offices are underfunded. There's not a lot of staff. And so it, it very much is a lot of transactional actions at the community college level. And we're trying to change that with our practice and the holistic case management policy. So you're thinking about teaching advising theory to community college advising staff. And talking about that very holistic centered advising, kind of almost like pumping the brakes on what is always a very fast paced environment for them, is is, it was something that I really wanted to think about and how I trained and spoke with all of the staff about advising theory and and applying these different tools within their toolboxes. And again, it's, it's not because the staff either didn't want to do this practice, some of them were already doing this practice, but in general. But the thing is, is that, again, uh, historically, community college advising offices are always underfunded. There's there's so many students, and there's only so many staff. And even with your heart in the right place about wanting to do this very holistic approach and sit down with a student for a half hour, 45 minutes, an hour, and talk with them about how they're doing, that just doesn't happen in a school with 3,500 staff members and three, or 3,500 students and three staff members in the advising office. Like, there's, it's just you against the world at that point. And so, it was very intentional when we were talking about advising theory, which uh, I think at four-year institutions, a lot of times, especially those that are, are 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 better off financially, can have a lot of advising staff and take those times to talk about the advising theory and how that works, and for. The community colleges that sometimes are so financially strapped, that's a tough thing to do. And so we're in an amazing place right now in the state of Connecticut to be able to have those conversations with our advisors and to emphasize that holistic approach with students and to almost what I've been telling my staff is, this is the time where you actually can pump the brakes. I want to write slow down on the wall. Like we need to slow down and and be with our students. And the investment in, in advising and the amount of money that's been invested by the state of Connecticut to do this is really that opportunity for us to slow down with our students and really kind of listen to them and where they're at. So
3: I might add a, a bit there too to add on to what Brian and, and Lucilla both shared in that, you know, oftentimes you you, you look at like the body of literature on coaching and it kind of is a blurred line between coaching and advising and we're trying to bring kind of those two together in some ways and um, thinking about as I me- I mentioned in the in the prior episode really um, a small portion of our advisors in the guided pathways model will be doing that that registration and schedule creation and degree audits and a their primary job will be really doing that coaching and mentoring. So I think we have to look at different um, bodies of literature, you know, that coaching, mentoring and advising and kind of finding the synergies between them as as uh, they develop the professional learning program and we continue to implement.
2: And I suppose, and Michael, we, we spoke to you and Gail um, about this in, in that first interview in terms of buy-in, but this was a different stage of things and, and concepts are, are lovely and the theory is lovely and everyone agrees on, on a one-to-one level, you know, that we, we can discuss it and we can agree. But how do you go about like getting buy-in for this at, at scale at, at, this, at this stage of, um, of the, the program?
3: I can kick that off and just say, you know we've continued uh, the same way we were very inclusive with the policy development work. We've had uh, monthly forums throughout the spring um, where we opened it up to Q and A for ninety percent of the time. We had a short kind of update and then we took questions. We have an online feedback form where we can receive feedback anonymously from any uh, staff or faculty across the campuses. So keeping that communication open, the second part I would say is relying on the experts we already had working on those campuses. So the incumbent existing staff members there have been tapped and leveraged to do a lot of kind of the supporting the new hires. So I think um, both Kat Lacella and Brian have uh, been very intentional about um, seeing that they have this expertise in folks on the campus and lifting that up. And and we intend to bring that to the next level where those folks can start joining us in some of the kind of uh, creation of a version 2.0, all right? And, and contribute to that and, and, and host events where there's a, a sharing of concepts and ideas from the phase one schools with the phase two and three uh, campuses. So really um, that inclusivity, communication and um, getting on the ground too. You know, we uh, Brian and Kat Um, are are there. Um, They rotate through and and visit um, the campuses and and work closely with with the lead on each campus.
5: I'd be happy to to chime in on on a campus specific level and I, and I'll talk about Middlesex Community College in the Capital East region um, as far as buy in was that's where the the sort of mission and vision of what we're trying to what we're not trying what we are doing with with guided pathway really comes into play and helping folks on campus really really see it because in order to bring them along, they need to be able to see it. They need to be able to conceptualize it. So including them in this process, for me at Middlesex, that was really important with faculty. Faculty was really hands-on with advising. They feared that guided pathway advising would come in and sort of take their student advisees, and they were really worried about that. And it took the campus advising lead and myself at the table to say, look, this is our mission and vision. We are an extension of you. You are in the classroom. You want to deliver your curriculum your 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 primary job right is to teach our students um, we are an extension of that so how do you envision guided pathway advisors sort of complementing your role and then as michael mentioned sort of that wealth of knowledge that they hold so now they're playing they play a primary role in in uh, really mentoring our guided pathway advisors to be, to have these areas of expertise Michael may have talked about in the last podcast areas of studies so we have areas of study set up at Middlesex and we have faculty advisors attached to the guided pathways and we're always anchoring it with that mission and vision and now they can see it and that being able to see it really helps with the buy-in and now they're our biggest advocates now when their colleagues across the system are saying oh well guided pathways this they're the first ones on the line to say well that that's not really true or this is what's happening at Middlesex and this is how it's helping us um so that has been really helpful to me over at Middlesex. So I just wanted to share that on campus level.
1: I also just wanted to bring one thing else. Uh, it was very, it was very intentional with, especially when we were beginning this, these conversations and and Mike Buccioli had tasked us with uh, working on and developing campus implementation teams on each of the phase one schools. And really the campus implementation team is a group of professionals within student affairs and academic affairs coming together to talk about this work with guided pathways advising and and we were very intentional on in diversifying those committees to be able to bring faculty to the table professionals and admissions and registrars and financial aid and student activities and wellness and bringing everybody to the table to talk about the implementation of this work and i think that that helped uh, with buy-in across all of our phase one schools i know for for myself as well You know, I got to meet some of the very key players and faculty in the big programs at my phase one schools to have conversations with them about how our work will help them and their students. And then how can we also hear what they need and support their work as well um, you know, as faculty members who are working within this advising space as well. And so these campus implementation teams that were designed to bring academic affairs and student affairs professionals together to have these conversations, I think really started some of the teamwork building that happened uh, and really kind of shaped some of the good work that's been started um, surrounding our Guided Pathways implementation
0: yeah and to do all of this, like you need staff for this. so how, with the guided pathways advising, like how does the hiring go with leadership or as well as getting uh, advising staff for all of this?
1: It almost feels like it it almost feels like it never ends <laughs> when you are scaling up some of these advising offices to be at scale for how many advisors we need. I can't tell you how much time LaSalle and I have spent together interviewing people um, you know across the across the state. Um, But this work really requires, uh, it's a lot, it's a big time investment from our GPA, our Guided Pathways Advising Leadership Team, to spend the time to be intentional about uh, hiring and really finding the right people for this work. And I I certainly can turn it over to both Mike and, uh, Mike Buccelli and LaSella to talk about the, commitment to diversity uh, with our hiring. But we have been very, very uh, strategic in the way that we've structured our our job descriptions to be inclusive to a lot of areas that really do uh, excellent work with students that we normally wouldn't wouldn't have within the advising spectrum of uh, our hiring uh, at that point. And so we wanted to be intentional with regards to being very specific about who we wanted to bring into this work and be also diversify our staff so that they could meet all of our students where they're at. So, um, but I'll turn it over, like I said, to, to Mike and Lacella to talk a little bit more about that. But I feel like I've been interviewing since, since March.
3: (laughs) Yeah, I I can add a bit there. I would say it's been, you know, a collaborative effort, uh, a big lift by the leadership team for Guided Pathways Advising, um, However, the campus CEO plays a, a key role there as well. Um, when we're hiring the, the leads of the campus, they're participatory in the, in the finalist interviews. Um, when we are, um, putting together a campus interview committee, the, the CEO or president, uh, makes recommendations, um, to be added to the committee. Um, we have done things to try to streamline cause this amount of hiring needs, um, some streamlining. So, uh, Creating a, a set of questions that are uh, standard um, across the campuses, but allowing the campus the flexibility to add a question or two that is unique to their um, specific student population and their campus's needs. Um, but the the time invested in hiring matters, and and um, I, I will defer to Lucella and Brian, who who have more hours logged with with HR and, and searches than I do at this point. But it is a, a it is a big lift.
5: You you may have to cut me off, and I won't be offended if you do. This is, this is definitely something I'm extremely passionate about. Um, I I am a Latina in higher education. We are in, in higher education and leadership. We are very few and and uh, far between. So the hiring process for me uh, personally, it was two parts i'll say it in two parts so the first is we're hiring towards a vision right we're hiring not to meet the to fit into the mold of the current advising we're we're hiring to deliver on our hicMA policy our guided pathway advising so that's one a majority i would say of folks in higher education have a higher ed background this The way that we hired for Guided Pathways is we really opened that up to a diverse um, pool of candidates, diverse backgrounds, uh, race, ethnicity, gender, area of expertise, degrees, things like that. I'll use Middlesex as an example of what I did with Middlesex. I I really took a look at their student population. Then I looked at the the candidate pool uh, that we had, and I was really intentional about. Hiring at Middlesex, of course, being qualified. Let me just say that since this is going to be circulated, uh, they had to be qualified. The Taking those qualified uh, candidates and really being intentional about bringing guided pathway advisor leadership and advisors on who really represented their campus student body. Um, that that was magical for me, as I said, as a Latina to be in this position to really, um, uh, you know put forward the vision for for guided pathways so, but to be in a position where i can actually hire a diverse uh workforce to do this work is just it is it is it's it's magical it is music to my ears it fills my soul um and we did that and i think all of our campus one schools we did really well about diversifying and again not just diversity in race ethnicity and gender but in in areas of expertise too and guided pathways the way that that michael sort of uh, put this together put the Guided Pathways advising model together really allowed for that. And I'm really, it's already paying off. For example, um, areas of studies over at Middlesex, we have an individual who has a bachelor's in criminal justice. His area of study is a criminal justice degree. Faculty love that because now they have someone who went through the curriculum, who has experience in the the workforce, who can now support them. We have someone else in human services who is now doing social sciences, who is is collaborating with faculty. So diversifying our workforce, it, it was just a win win all around. And and quite frankly, it it was about time. Um, So I was really excited to to be a part of that and really proud of the work we did with diversifying our workforce. I'll stop there because I can keep going.
1: I just want to bring to light really fast. When you think about the case management advising model, you really have to think about the skill set that comes to being involved in that advising model. Working in a holistic uh, advising model, it requires a, a great deal of attention to the student, understanding their own personal challenges, what they're going through, where they're at, what resources are available to support students. This isn't our traditional advising practice. Um, you know, if we go back to the, you know Obanian's model of advising in '72 and we look at what advising was, that's not what it is today like advising is much more holistic. It is much more meeting the student where they are at. It is much more navigating personal socioeconomic challenges that students are facing. We are not just discussing the curriculum anymore. We are helping students navigate the scene of higher ed and also helping them navigate their own personal and socioeconomic challenges that they're facing in their lives so that they can be successful in the classroom. And that takes a unique skill set now. Uh, advising has changed uh, and we're very much very excited to be at the forefront of that when we think about our hiring policies and we're thinking about who we're bringing to the table, who are our next Guided Pathways advisors. It's those people in, in all different types of lines of work in the fields of social work and teaching and the nonprofit sectors, it's, it's individuals who have experience Experience, helping students, clients navigate these challenges because this is what advising is now. Advising is no longer this transactional very approach to let me get your classes and you get on out of here. This is a very much kind of a holistic hands-on helping students navigate the landscape of higher ed and their own personal lives so that they can be successful and earn an education credential or transfer. And so I think that's played very much into our vision for hiring and what we want out of our GPA staff, uh, because it's important. And really it's the right thing to do.
5: Just to to Brian's uh, point, because one of the things that we have heard, we talk about all the pros, but um, I'd be remiss if we didn't talk about some of the pushback, right? So some of like, oh, well, these advisors don't have a higher um, ed background, but being cross Cross-sectoral and cross-functional is very important, and I and I, we're seeing that now, right? I think when we when we diversify our workforce the way that we have, and we have sort of cr- cross-sectoral guided pathway advisors sort of in the mix, that really in my opinion, at least in my experience so far, has really minimized the sort of group think. We're not all looking through this work through the same lens. And everyone from their sector have something to contribute to what this holistic case management advising model could look like and what guided pathway advising, you know, could potentially be. Um, But if I'm only looking at this work through a higher ed lens, then I'm looking at it through one way, we all go through sort of similar training, similar coursework. But when you have folks from different sectors, you really, you really increase and 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 maximize on all their areas of expertise. And that's how amazing Guided Pathways has been in phase one and will continue to be because we all are looking at this work, one mission, one vision, but through a different lens and great ideas um, come from that. And I, I think that that has been really undervalued. And that's an important important points to make um, in hiring.
3: I would add one last piece to that. And just that that this was intentional. We made an intentional choice to go from what was a master's degree plus two years experience to even get in the door to a bachelor's degree and professional experience in a related area. And we allowed for candidates to tell us their story and how they were connected to the mission and vision of Guided Pathways. And that has opened up um, a diverse and and robust kind of uh, workforce candidate pool, um, and and to 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 echo what Lucella and Brian have said, that great ideas are coming out of folks who are just stepping into uh, higher ed as a professional, um, and and that we often kind of see through that same lens. And, and our students may not be seeing through that lens, especially if they're first gen, especially if they're new in college. So uh, meeting the students where they are is more likely to happen if you bring that diversity of background and perspective.
2: And I think that that intentionality is is so important. And I think that plus that commitment to diversity um, it's it's similar what to i suppose what i'm seeing in, in some institutions in terms of the student intake that in terms of their um you know they they're looking not just at academics but they're looking to bring in diverse cohorts who have maybe experience in the in the area so you know I, I think maybe higher ed is open up that way which is is good but maybe um just in in terms of kind of getting a uh, where we are now because michael you'd mentioned i think early in in our interview one of the aims i think was the reduction for student advisors from 750 to to one to 250 to one and i suppose with the the nuts and bolts now in place and the work uh ongoing wh- where are we now on that i can tell you from
1: my phase one school that uh, my advisors are busy. <laughs> I um, I look at their calendars and what we would assume is a very, as soon as you get through Ad drop and the community colleges in the past, it's been almost like a lull afterwards. It's like, oh, we survived we survived ad drop and now we have a couple of you know weeks until we can get into the registration kind of phase. That approach has been flipped on its head. Uh, and we are now um, extremely intentional about reaching out to students in this first one to three weeks is our game plan for as many students as we could possibly see because we know through the literature that this contact with students immediately and at least starting these conversations will help lead to better levels of persistence, better levels of retention, if they know through the gate that they have somebody to talk to in that first one to three weeks, one to four weeks, when some of those initial challenges come up for students where they may decide, well, maybe college isn't right for me. Maybe I made a mistake there. How do we get those students in the door with, in between weeks one through four? So my advising staff uh, at, at Northwestern Connecticut Community College have been working extremely hard. Their calendars are jam-packed. Uh, we're I'm here today at Northwestern. I'm here to talk with them and see how they're doing and to show a face here and a presence for them because I know that they've been working so hard. And, and so, but we're, you know, even still though, the 250 to one is is an admirable reduction. It's still a lot, you know, but it's, it allows the time. It, it does allow the flexibility and time for us to meet with students and have those conversations. And so that's what I am hearing on the ground from my staff is that they are having these conversations with students virtually and in person. They are able to talk with them about their goals and where they're at. And so for, for my phase one school, certainly it's been very, very, very busy. But that's a good thing. I mean, we we want to see this foot traffic. This is why we're here. So, and I'll turn it over to Lasella to get her perspective on her Phase One school.
5: You won't be surprised to hear this, um, Brian. But um, I'm exactly where you are because I'm using the framework that you actually put together for Northwestern. So, right, Brian put a lovely framework together. We're one, one weeks one to three. We're really uh, focusing on the outreach to students as a touch point. Then, you know, weeks three to five will we'll transition, start thinking more about uh, retention, start keeping an eye on the data. Um, so I'm, I'm exactly where, where Brian is. So I have nothing to contribute other than that the advisors are very busy. Um, they are meeting with uh, their caseload in, in the community college system. You know, there's that push for sort of registration. So those students who sort of got pushed through to to register, but not necessarily meet with their advisor and have sort of an in-depth discussion, we're doing intentional outreach for, for them right now. So that's that's the phase that we are currently in.
3: I can add to this, too. I would say that, you know, by the end of this calendar year, it is our goal to have um, five Uh, additional schools at scale. And um, then during the spring semester, the final four campuses at scale. Um, So by June next year, we will be at scale. Um, But I I think it's also important to talk a little bit about um, our advising technology and our platform that we're developing, because I think to Brian's point, uh, 250 still is a lot. So one of the key aspects of the policy, um, the HICMA policy, was to implement a student success technology platform that allows advisors to monitor progress, to triage, and to intervene proactively um, so that, you know, not all students um, may need the same thing. We know they don't, right? So um, Michael G. is uh, really leading the functional work as we uh, move towards implementation with with that piece of technology this coming spring as well. Um, so uh, Michael, you want to talk a little bit about how you envision that coming out and there's the training with it and there's a whole nother lift that is associated with uh, the implementation of that technology.
7: Yeah, certainly. Um, and, and for me with, with, and there's so many exciting things about uh, what we're doing and that we've talked about today, but biasly for me, this is probably one of the most exciting is the technology piece. Um, and it really breaks down to how are we gathering data and what are we doing with it? Um, so some of the immediate things that we've already started doing as we move through uh, these phases and implementation are collecting intake surveys from students at our phase one institutions um, and more holistic intake surveys that focus on their career and academic needs and their holistic needs at home. We know our population varies very widely and, and we would be remiss if we implemented this type of model and then didn't take into account what all our varying student needs could potentially be. Um, The system that we're gonna be using is an operational and collaborative CRM product from Elucian that really affords us the opportunity to really bring all the stakeholders on each of the campuses together to make sure that we're providing comprehensive wraparound services for our students As quickly and expeditiously as they need them, um, which is something that I think, unfortunately, we would all agree we didn't have the resources to do before. We may have had those experts and resources on campus, but there wasn't a clear or comprehensive way to connect those folks, uh, either between offices or students to offices. So we are purposefully building this CRM tool to do just that. Um, not only with our academic advisors, but we're going to bring in other offices like Veterans Affairs, International Services, Career and Academic Advising all together to make sure that when a student needs to have their plan revised, if their situation changes, we're doing that as a team uh, and not in isolation. So to Brian's earlier point, A caseload of 250 students is, still a lot, it's very comprehensive, but a tool like this allows all of our staff and our campus leaders to really get a whole picture of the student, where they are, what supports they need, Um, and it gives us as a leadership team the opportunity to evaluate that data on a very consistent basis, whether it be daily, weekly, monthly, um, and then make those data-informed decisions that I'm always excited to look at. Uh, It gives us an opportunity for process improvement it gives us an opportunity to see what's working uh, and we can continue to pour resources into those areas and it most importantly gives us an opportunity to see what's not working where are we falling behind uh, where do students need more resources uh, and again i think that's something that we've all wanted to do in the past but this is really the first biggest opportunity we have to do it in practice um, so we plan on implementing in early uh, spring of 2022 um, and with that it's going to come a whole series of training uh, we're going to follow a train-the-trainer model for a lot of leadership on each of the campuses. Um, I'm excited to part with our new director of training and professional learning to roll out what we'll call end-user training for uh, upwards of 200-plus uh, guided pathways advising staff. Um, and, and we should be up and operational with our timeline by March and April, uh, which, again, for me is really exciting. It uh, gives us an opportunity to really see this in action um, and see our work come to a, a a peak, if you will, uh, after the first year. So, um, a lot of exciting opportunities ahead in the coming months.
0: Yeah, we're definitely looking forward to possibly having you on again and seeing where things are at maybe in a year. And it's great to see that there is this holistic approach—you uh, with the students, with the with the staff, with the leadership—and you know, best to you on this continued implementation, but we have reached the end of this uh, interview and there's a lot of information that's been given uh, both in the first part of this uh, interview with the history of it, and also now with the implementation. So a lot of tidbits from how it all started, the structure to organization, the beginnings of the implementation to, to now. But we heard from the last interview that you know more, some of this information is on the website, but if anyone wanted to reach out, any listeners wanted to reach out, had questions or comments, how can they reach out to you?
1: So I think they can reach out to any one of our you know, emails. We'd be happy to talk to anybody um, about any part of this, including we welcome anybody who's interested in, in working with advising or wanted to be a part of this work. We have job opportunities open in the state of Connecticut. We're here. We're excited about this. And so you can certainly reach out to any of us uh, at our emails, and we'd be happy to talk to you about anything that we've talked about today and or, you know, send you in the direction to look at some of the amazing jobs that are open in the state of Connecticut right now and to get a part, be a part of this work. Awesome. And we'll
0: put your contact info in our show notes for anyone that is interested. Uh, This has been a wonderful and informative chat. And I know we've learned so much uh, from this already. So especially regarding the case management and the guided pathway policies, but thank you all so much for joining us. It's been a real pleasure having you on the podcast.
3: Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you.
0: Thank you.
2: to Lisa, Michael and Brian for talking to us about the implementation phase and also scaling guided pathways advising and to Michael Gomans for offering information on how technology is being utilized to support the project. That will
0: do it for us for episode 43. Check out our YouTube channel at adventures in advising, subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform. And follow us on TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Advising Podcast. And also, check out our website, adventuresinadvising.com. Until next time, this is your reminder that you are awesome, sending positive vibes your way. And as always, keep advising.